giving thanks to the Lord for his good, his love endures forever. And as we head into the Thanksgiving season, I, I pray that that's exactly uh, what you're mindful of. Um, what, what are you thankful for today? And what are you thankful for during this season? What are some of those things that elicit that response of gratitude in your own life? I think one of the things I, I would hope that we would carry into this Thanksgiving break is just the reminder that as followers of Christ and, and recipients of the hope of the gospel, we perhaps more than anyone else on the planet have a reason to be grateful. Uh, no matter what challenges, obstacles, situations we may face, we should always be a people of gratitude. And I hope that you're able to embody that and experience that over the next few days and really throughout the course of our lives. Uh, it also signifies, as we get into Thanksgiving, a change of seasons, right? It's crazy to think, but today we'll, we'll wrap up our series that kind of is carried us through October and November and allowed us to put this emphasis on missions. And when we come back next Sunday, it's Advent. Oh my goodness. Uh, that is crazy to think that we are headed into the Christmas season. I love Advent and, and I love the whole Christmas season. And I think part of it is that it's a season of anticipation, right? So much of, of the, the things that you do, the traditions you experience, the the ways that you commit your time are in anticipation of December 25th. You know, the advent calendars and the countdown. Everything's building and progressing towards something. And, and we kind of can imagine the great experience on Christmas morning that we either had as a young child or maybe even still gets experienced today. This picture of opening presents with family and sharing and, and great food and just rest and making memories together. I mean, they're just, it's like this giant reward that, that is waiting for you there at the end of the Advent season. And I think that's, that's kind of what makes Advent itself so enjoyable, right? You're going through this season anticipating this, this great end, this great reward, this great gift that is ultimately there. And, and I really feel like that's indicative of life, especially life as, as a follower, right? That many of us have been brought into the hope of the gospel, anticipating this ultimate reward that we have in eternity, right? This ultimate promise of being with with God forever and what allows us to navigate the ups and downs and the twists and turns of this life in a spirit of joy is keeping our eyes on that ultimate gift to know that it's all building towards something. And that's really what I hope we can focus in on in our time together today in God's word is to once again be reminded of the fact that God is leading us somewhere and that ultimately he is our great reward, right? And that the joy and the blessings we get to experience in this life are a result of being able to follow him. And so uh, for those reasons in and of themselves, we have plenty to be grateful for. And so in order to entrust and enter into this spirit appropriately, um, I'm just gonna ask that we enter into a time of prayer and thanksgiving for all that God is doing and he has done as we anticipate his word. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together. Father heaven, we do thank you. We give you thanks. Father, for all the, the amazing gifts that you offer us, so many that often go unnoticed. Father, so many gifts that we often take for granted. And so for life, for breath, for family, for relationships, God, even for the hard things, we give you thanks. Those hard things that produce perseverance and, and character and hope, Father, those things that lead us into a greater understanding of who you are, we give you thanks. And Father, help us to keep our eyes focused on what this is all for, what lies ahead, the reward of being with you forever. Let us 
fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and cling to him today, in this moment, and in all seasons that you would lead us through. For it's in his name that we pray these things, and for his glory that we give our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We would be happy to gift one to you. As I said a second ago, this is our kind of final message that, that takes us through the, this missions emphasis, this series that we've been walking through over the last couple of months. And we're going to finish off this discourse today that we see in Matthew chapter 10. And before we get to Jesus' concluding remarks here, I want to make sure that we kind of hear it in the context of all that we've discussed uh, over the last several weeks and, and remind you of kind of the essence of, of what has prompted this discussion and the things that Jesus has focused on. If you remember, the way chapter 9 ends is, is a call towards this idea that the harvest is plentiful, right? Jesus has been going to village to village, and he's been doing all these incredible things and these incredible miracles. And so he stops and he assesses the situation and says, the harvest is plentiful, but what? The workers are few. And he says, pray that the Lord would send more workers into the harvest. And then that transitions to chapter 10, where Jesus himself truly does the sending. He sends the 12 out into the harvest. Now, when he commissions them and he sends them, what does he do? He gives them authority, gives them his power, power to cast out demons, to, to heal diseases. And this demonstration of power is designed to authenticate and verify and add credibility to the message. And what is that message? That the kingdom of God is near, right? That's the message that his disciples are sent to proclaim and to declare. Now, Jesus gives them a lot of instructions in terms of how they can do this. Here's where you can go, here's where you can't go, here's who you can talk to, here's who you can't talk to, here's what you can and cannot take with you. And he goes through all these different instructions, and it's in the middle of those instructions that he begins to relude to the fact that they're going to encounter resistance, right? Not everybody's going to receive them and welcome them in. And as this theme of resistance begins to unfold, Jesus elaborates on this conversation of persecution. And it becomes a very sobering message, sobering because what we hear is that it's not just that there's going to be the threat of persecution in the midst of synagogues and being arrested before governors and kings, but that this, this persecution is going to actually take place in some of the most intimate spaces, even within the home, right? It's going to, it's going to pull families apart. So this is a, a challenging message for them to hear. And so Jesus first ex explains to them the rationale behind it, the reason for it, saying, listen, if I'm on a road of suffering, if I'm on a road of hardship, then so will my followers, right? Because no, no t student is greater than their teacher. So if I'm going to experience these things, so will you. But having established the rationale for it, he then tries to comfort, just like Jesus always did with, with, does with these reminders. Don't be afraid. Time and time again, that's the promise of Scripture. Fear not. Don't be afraid. You don't need to fear this persecution because you need to know that what is currently being questioned and whispered about in quiet places is gonna be declared from rooftops. I am who I say I am. I am the Messiah, and this will be proven true. You don't have to fear mankind. Don't worry about them. No matter what they may threaten you with, you don't need to fear them. Fear rather the one who is carrying both body and soul in your hand. That's where our healthy fear and reverence of God needs to be maintained. But then he tells us that we don't have to fear it too much because he's a loving father. He's not some vindictive deity. He's a loving father who sees our worth, who says that we are valuable, that we are worth more than so many other things 
that we encounter in life. And so he, he provides this comfort, encouraging them not to be afraid. And then he describes the fearless person, which is what we talked about last week, right? The fearless person is gonna be the one that declares allegiance, that acknowledges Jesus in all situations and circumstances, even in the threat of resistance and persecution, right? He's not gonna disown him. He's not gonna turn from Jesus. The fearless person is gonna understand that when we pursue all these impulses of self-gratification, self-actualization, self indulgence, those things end up leaving us feeling empty, right? And so when we think we're, we're finding life in that way, we're actually losing it, right? The fearless person knows that you can choose a life of surrender. You, you can choose a life of taking up your cross and choose a life of sacrifice, and it's there that you actually find it, right? And so Jesus is going through all those different elements, and that's where we get to these final concluding thoughts in Matthew chapter 10. So follow along with me. In verse 40, it says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. I love the way that this, this works. We're going to focus on two things, and, and the first is really kind of a recap of so many of the dominant themes that you see in chapter 10, and, and the word welcomes is repeated over and over again in these first few verses, and, and this kind of conjures back up this idea of hospitality that we've talked about on numerous occasions while going through chapter 10, that, that even though Jesus is sending out his disciples in a way that they're not able to take certain material uh, items with them, they're, they're going to be faced with opposition and resistance, they can still do so because they know they're going to be received and welcomed by others, right? And so that's been a theme that we've talked about, that, that that is this essentially a task that they're sending them into, that Jesus sent them into, that is going to be one that is highly relational, right? And so, so you see the gift of hospitality here, but what's interesting in these last few verses is that we we see that the way that Jesus presents this idea of welcoming and receiving in such a manner that it's more than just hospitality, right? This is more than just, hey, somebody's going to uh, give you a place to stay and give you something to eat and, and protect you for your journey, that to receive a disciple is the same as receiving Jesus himself, right? To receive a disciple is, is like receiving Jesus, and if you receive Jesus, that's receiving the one who sent Jesus. This is a significant statement, right? This is more than just a gesture of hospitality. This is a reception. This is a welcoming of the message itself. This is a description of those who will receive the gospel, right? Now, part of what I want to make a connection to is that the disciples fall in this category as well, right? That they have received the message of Jesus, and that has led them to being sent out. But, but in the same way, they are also going to be received and others are going to receive this message of the gospel. Okay, so this is an incredibly important term and that, that carries at least two strong implications that I don't want us to forget as we've walked through this series. The first one is the essential nature of the task. This is how the gospel flourishes, by people being sent out so that the message can be received. Right? When we go, we are giving people the opportunity to receive not just us in a relationship with us, but a relationship with Jesus himself and the one who's sent him. This is how the gospel moves 
and advances. This is how the kingdom begins to take hold of the darkness in different corners of the earth. There is an essential task. It is not enough for the church to sit back and think, someone else. They'll find it on their own. Right? The, the essence and one of the dominant themes of chapter 10 is the Lord has sent his church. So one of the questions I want you asking yourself is where is he sending you? Right? Where, where is God sending you? And, and do you see the essential nature of that task that he's put before you? Now, in addition to that, this notion of hospitality, this notion of he is sending us not just to perform some task or some chore, but he's sending us into relationship, right, to be received by others and that we too have received a relationship reminds us of how this gospel really begins to flourish, the venue, the avenue, the, the method with which this gospel begins to take root. It, it happens through loving the neighbor, right, that, that part of the reason these disciples are going to be received to such an extent is because those folks who open up their homes and open up their lives are demonstrating a love for the neighbor, demonstrating a love and a reception and a receptiveness to, to the foreigner among them, to the stranger in their midst. And at the same time, the disciples that are going to, to carry this message, to go to these towns, to go to these villages are demonstrating a love for the neighbor. And so embedded and almost indirectly and yet some ways directly stated in Matthew chapter 10 is a reminder that the way that we receive this gospel, the way that we foster this relationship with God and the way that we demonstrate our love for him is through a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. And so the other question I want you reflecting on is that evident in your life as well? Right? Is your life uh, able to demonstrate on a consistent basis a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor, both by who you're willing to go to and who you're willing to receive. Right? So this, this idea of welcoming is incredibly strong and incredibly important. It's, it's a dominant theme that we've seen throughout Matthew chapter 10. So here's my question. How motivated are you? How, how motivated are you to carry this through? For some of us, I think it can be pretty simple. Right? A lot of times we, we see things and we go, well, I should do it because it's in the Bible. You know, if it's in the Bible, I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it because it's in the Bible, right? And we just have this really simplistic faith. Jesus said so, so there you go, right? And that's, that's awesome. But I, I think it actually is worth going deeper than that, right? That this is more than just a simplistic obedience. You know, we do this because Jesus said so, but that there's so much underneath this that speaks to motivation and incentive. Now, motivation and incentive is a really interesting thing to consider if you think about what what motivates you, right? We go through a daily experience of a thousand different decisions that we constantly put through this almost uh, instinctive evaluation process to, the, to kind of measure our motives and our incentives, right? It, simple decisions like what we're gonna wear in a given day, who we're gonna talk to, how our day is gonna be filled, what chores we're gonna try to accomplish. And all these things are kind of filtered through this idea of do I wanna do that, do I not? And what's motivating me to do this and what is not motivating me to do this. We're constantly making decisions and shaping our lives based on motivation and incentive, right? And so what we see here at the end of chapter 10 is that Jesus introduces this, this other concept, and this is kind of where I want us to camp out for the rest of the message, which is the idea of reward, right? Three different times he says it in his concluding remarks here about a reward. Now, a reward just means to be paid for what you've done. And, and so 
you see if you uh, receive a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. You receive a righteous person, a righteous person's reward. And then he even makes a simple reference. Even if they just give you a cold cup of water, that essentially would have been the bare minimum, uh, the, the bare minimum gesture of hospitality, that even if you just did that, you're going to receive a reward that you cannot lose. So Jesus is bringing uh, up this concept of reward to help incentivize and motivate this whole task, right? Because the disciples are going to know, well, listen, we've received this message, and so if they're going to benefit from a reward by receiving it, then we too are receiving a reward by uh, accepting this message. And so you have this whole question of motivation that begins to unfold at the end of chapter 10. And part of what I think you and I recognize from just life experience is that there tend to be two different things that incentivize and motivate us in life, either punishment or reward, right? I mean, this is kind of parenting 101, and it's kind of the early introduction to it, whether as a child or as a parent, where you are constantly reminded that I'm trying to conform my child's behavior by either the threat of punishment or the benefit of reward, right? Don't, don't do that again. Don't don't make that choice or I'm going to ground you or you're going to get a spanking or you're going to lose privileges, right? We're, we're constantly offering the threat of some form of punishment to try to alter someone's behavior or we offer an incentive. Hey, if you clean your room, I'll give you a cookie, right? Clean your room, I'll give you extra TV, right? Or like we have all these incentives and yet it's not confined, excuse me, it's not confined to just children, we see it on into to, to adulthood. Think about all the different reward programs that we, we are constantly bombarded with, with different businesses. Hey, you go to Marvel Slab, get some ice cream, and they're like, thanks for buying your ice cream. Here's a card. Buy 10 more, we'll give you some free ice cream. In fact, I'll go ahead and stamp it three more times. You just need to buy six more, and you'll get some free ice cream. We're like, ooh, reward, and maybe we'll keep coming back to Marvel Slide. We have restaurants that do this all the time, sign up for a rewards program, we'll track all your purchases, and then boom, free coffee. Boom, free sandwich, right? And this is, this is all designed with a certain goal in mind. Think about airlines. Airlines do this all the time, right? You keep flying with us, we're gonna give you certain privileges, we're gonna put you on that plane sooner and make you sit in that seat longer, which is a great thing, apparently. And so you go to the boarding gate and they say, all right, we need our platinum group. Need our double platinum, now triple platinum, now triple double ruby platinum infinity. I mean, it's like all these different rewards things. You know what they call those? Loyalty programs. Isn't that interesting? Right? The, the goal is loyalty. And so isn't it somewhat interesting that Jesus here, after extending this commission to his disciples, is incentivizing them by referencing this idea of reward because what he is after is loyalty. Loyalty to the task, obedience to the call. And so understanding the way that this gospel message and these scriptures lay out for us this idea of both punishment and reward is pretty important. And it's, it's a very established biblical concept. And so I, I don't want to run past it for a minute. I want to make sure that we understand not just a societal exposure to rewards and punishments, but a biblical one. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to do a quick survey of Scripture. This is by no means exhaustive, um, but, but I do want to at least reference some for you. I didn't ask them to put them all up on the screen because I have several that I'm going to read through. If you want to try to follow along, it can be like your own personal Bible drill for a little bit, and that'd be awesome. Um, but let me just go ahead and try to establish a little bit of the biblical perspective that is this constant teaching of both punishment as a reward in our relationship with God. But we're going to kind of skew the angle a little bit more towards the reward 
verses and discussions. But when you look at the Old Testament, you can see that this was inherent from the very beginning to the formation of the people of Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Let me just give you some uh, excerpts from Deuteronomy 28. Here's how it reads. It says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out, if you obey, right? But then if you continue reading, here's the alternative. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. And the crops of your land, the calves of your herds, and lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. So right there from the very beginning and woven throughout the Old Testament is this understanding of both punishment and reward. Now what's interesting is, is that typically in the Old Testament perspective, especially through the lens of the nation of Israel, a lot of those blessings and curses were seen through the filter of this life. Right, and you heard it there, crops, wombs, when you go in, when you go out, all those different concepts that were more common at that point in time. Now, when you get into later Judaism, and you get a little bit further along, they begin to attach the idea of eternal life, right? That, that death is kind of an ultimate punishment for the wicked, and that there's this divine mercy that might be in store for the righteous. And so that becomes the backdrop that Jesus steps into, and Jesus just continues to build upon it. Right? There are numerous discussions that he talks about uh, the threat and the penalty for disobedience and the, the concern of punishment, but he also talks extensively about rewards, storing up treasures in heaven. Right? If you go back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about persecution. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Luke chapter 6, he's talking about this radical and unyielding love that we should have in our lives. What does he say? If you love your enemies and you do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. So the concept of, of reward and punishment continues even more extensively through the teachings of Jesus. So then you get to the New Testament writings and this whole idea of giving an account for our lives really begins to take hold. You get to 2 Corinthians, and there's this discussion from Paul about the day that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything we've done. That needs to set in for a little bit. Right? Galatians 6, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. For those who sow to the deeds of the flesh, they will reap the deeds of the flesh. For those who sow to the Spirit will reap the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This, this understanding that and there's going to be a response for how we live our life is undeniable in the New Testament. But this idea of reward continues to be flushed out. You go a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 3, and it says the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. And later in that chapter, you get this really interesting description that I've never really studied in great detail, but it's always been very intriguing to me, and maybe I'll have time to go do that at some point in the future. But it essentially, Paul begins to talk about building upon a foundation. The foundation is Jesus, and all these laborers, him and Apollos, they, they build upon it. So when we go and we, we do this work of the gospel, we're building upon the foundation of Jesus, and some will build all these different things, and the, the metaphor, the imagery is of 
building in, in gold and in silver or wood and hay and all these different things. And then there's gonna be a day, the day of judgment, where what we've built with our lives stands the test. And here's how it is discussed in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, paraphrasing it. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames. Really fascinating text. It's like this idea that what you do with your life is gonna be put on display, and man, it could endure the testing of this day of judgment and be this, this reward that you receive, right? But if we don't make much of this gospel, we'll still be saved, but as one escaping the flames. It's a really interesting teaching, but it's firmly established in Scripture, okay? And so, so the question then becomes, why does Jesus here at Matthew 10 emphasize reward more so than punishment? Why, why does Jesus not take the tone, hey, if you don't do this, let me tell you what's going to happen, right? Here's, here's, here's the bad stuff that awaits you. Instead, he points to the reward. Why is that? Well, I think one of the things that we should consider is how our brains process reward differently than punishment. And it does. It processes it very differently. I came across this article uh, that was written in the Harvard Business Review in 2017. And they focused in on this study at New York State Hospital that was really trying to work on getting uh, greater compliance amongst the medical staff to wash and sanitize their hands upon entering and leaving a patient's room. And so you know, you know the drill, right? I mean, we, we've seen it all plastered all over hospitals and restaurants and things like that, the importance of employees washing their hands. And so they had the signs all up, and it was typically the negative message, right? If you don't wash your hands, here's the threat of diseases that can spread. You must do it as an employee. And, and they even had cameras installed to kind of monitor these hand-washing sanitization stations to make sure the employees knew, like, hey, we're going to know if you do or if you don't. And what they discovered kind of shockingly and disturbingly, was only 10% of the medical staff in New York State Hospital were washing and, and sanitizing their hands upon entering and exit, exiting the room. So they wanted to change that. So you know what they did? They just shifted the whole philosophy. And they went away from you know, punishment and monitoring towards an incentive. And so they said, hey, here's what we're gonna do. For your shift, whatever shift you're on, we're gonna give you a point every time somebody on your shift washes their hands. And they kind of developed a point system for for this team environment. Then they even installed these electronic boards near the hand washing and sanitization stations that could be electronically triggered whenever somebody used it, and it would just flash the words, good job, right? Good job, like they were training dogs, you know? And what was amazing was that in four weeks' time, the compliance rate went from 10% to 90, just by that simple twist of affirmation. And so what neuroscience has shown us through studies like these and many others is that our brains react differently to reward than it does to punishment. That what typically happens is that when we are given the idea of a reward, it triggers a go signal in the brain. It triggers action. When we are faced with the threat of punishment, it triggers a no-go signal in your brain. Right, so that's even when you like face danger or, or a threat, you kind of freeze, right? You don't, you don't move forward. That's that signal in your brain being Fired. And so the, the point of the article was, if you want to incentivize someone towards action, offer a reward. If you want to offer a deterrent to, to motivate towards inaction, don't do this behavior, then offer more 
of a punishment, that that typically is how our brains respond. So isn't it interesting that here's Jesus, what is he doing? He's calling them to action, right? What he wants to initiate is the go signal in our brains, and so he brings back to their attention this idea of reward. And so for us to do justice to this message this morning, to this text, I think what would benefit all of us would be to stop and say, okay, well, then what is the reward? Have you really stopped and considered that? Like, like, let that sink in for a moment. Those that receive the gospel, there is a reward that awaits you. Well, what is it? And, and how do we really uh, reflect upon it this morning? Well, I was wrestling with that this week and came across a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, right, a great historical uh, American history, church history preacher. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard reference before. And I came across this sermon where he spoke on this particular topic. And, and I loved his approach. And I'm going to utilize a lot of his points. I would encourage you to go and, and read it in its entirety if you're interested in that. I'm, I'm only taking just a few excerpts from it. But what I loved about his approach was he, he drew his readers and his listeners' attentions to Romans chapter 2. Okay, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of pivot a little bit and read for you this text from Romans chapter 2 and, and kind of use this as a way for us to get a better understanding of what the reward really is that has been offered through the gospel. Okay, so picking up in verse 5, here's what, what Paul says. He says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's punishment, right? If you continue to choose stubbornness, if you continue to choose a life of unrepentance, let me, get, let me tell you what is waiting for you. Let me, let me tell you what your reward is. It's wrath. You're literally storing it up, right? So there's the threat of punishment with the reminder as he continues, God will repay each person according to what they have done. But now he shifts. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. There's the reward. And, and that's the one that we typically think of, right? We got John 3:16 memorized that if I believe in him, I won't perish, but I'll have everlasting life, eternal life. That's the great reward that we typically go to, right? I mean, if I get Jesus, I get heaven. And that's true. And that's incredible, but it's so much deeper than just living forever. And we need to really reflect upon what that eternal life looks like and how we even begin to experience it and taste it here in our current reality. All right, so Paul continues with this comparison between the two, going back first to the threat of punishment, saying, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Here it is. Here's the reward. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Glory, honor, and peace. You ever thought through those things? Edwards is a phenomenal exposition on this text, and, and let me just highlight some of the things that he included. He, he broke it into these categories of how we experience this glory and honor and peace, both in this life and the life that is to come, All right? So let's follow that same progression. In this life, glory. Part of the way that we experience the glory of this gospel is being told and understanding and believing that we are made in the image of God. Every single one of you, 
Is there anything more glorious than that? To know that we carry and embody the image of our creator. His glory in some mysterious way is revealed in every heart and soul, meaning every heart and soul has inherent value and glory. And that this life is designed to be a journey where we move into ever-increasing glory. And so while it is imperfect, it is all real. You were made in the glorious image of God. And that should never be taken for granted. Honor. We are considered God's children. Right? That, that's how he defines the relationship that we have with him. Think about the honor that is established within that parental relationship. When you think about the great household and the difference between the servants and the children. The servants are busying with tasks and, and serving different responsibilities and moving about here and there. The children get a seat at the table. That's who we are. The honor that is given to us through this gospel is to be known as children of God. What an incredibly honorable thing to behold. Peace. Edwards goes into great detail on peace. Think about all the ways that we get to experience the peace from this gospel in this life. Number one, peace because of safety. Right? That, that no matter what brokenness we encounter, be it within our hearts or in this world, we have been redeemed and forgiven and we are forever held in the hands of our Savior. He keeps us safe. We find refuge in him. Right? That, that sense of safety affords us a peace to navigate every trial and circumstance that we could ever encounter in this life. That is remarkable. It is a gift. It's a reward. Right? It's not just peace from safety. It's, it's the peace that we find from the riches of this gospel. As we talked about in our series through Ephesians, that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. We have been lavished upon with grace and love and joy and faith. Think of the fruits of the Spirit. Right, The riches of this gospel are rewards that we get to experience in this life. Not only that, we're able to comprehend who God is. I think about the peace of being able to understand not just that there is a creator, but who he is. Now, he is still mysterious and unsearchable and not able to fully know him in his, his fullness, but still he is a God who has revealed himself. And he reveals himself perfectly through the person of Jesus. So we know his plan, we know his purpose, we know his heart, we know his, his, his desire for us, we know all these different things. We can conceive and begin to understand the greatness of this God, and in so doing, begin to understand our place in this relationship with our God, right? Which leads to another level of peace that he's invited us into his plan. He's invited us into his purposes. What a tremendous reward. Because when he invites us into that plan, it's there that we find the fulfillment that our souls long for, peace, honor, glory, all that we get to experience in this life. What a tremendous reward of this gospel. And yet we know it doesn't stop here in just this life. It does move into eternity, right? And so you think about how glory and honor and peace begin to manifest themselves as we anticipate what awaits us in the life that is to come. The way that begins to manifest itself is into an ever-increasing glory, honor, and peace. That now we can see that death is, in effect, nothing to be feared. Death itself is no longer an enemy, 
Imagine that gift for a moment. Be grateful for that gift for a moment. The death is nothing that has command over you, your life, your fears, your existence. You have been gifted this reward that allows you to see it as merely a transition. And what is that transition but into greater glory, greater honor, greater peace? 1 Corinthians 15 talks about these heavenly bodies, and Edwards draws our attention to those as well. Right, that everything we experience in this life is still through that lens of imperfection. But when we transition beyond that death and into the promises that await us, we begin to experience new levels of glory, honor, and peace. And that includes a heavenly body. Right? If you think about the, the impact of that, I love the way that Edwards puts it into his own words. He says, the glory of that body that the saints shall rise with is what now cannot, we cannot now conceive of. It shall not be such a dull and heavy molded thing as it is now. It shall be active and vigorous as a flame of fire fit for the use of a glorified soul. I love that. We will receive a body. Right now our bodies are hindrances, right? We will receive a heavenly body that is fit for use of a glorified soul. It will be no clog or hindrance to the soul it is now, but an organ every way fit for the use of a glorious spirit. It shall, not, it shall not be weak and firm and frail as it is now, for though it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. What a reward. And after receiving that heavenly body, we have this description of standing before that throne and giving an account for everything that we've done. But think about that. All the good you've ever done, every moment that you chose self-denial, every moment that you chose self-sacrifice, every moment that you chose a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor will be brought before the praises of God and of angels when we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. What a reward. And it's not just heavenly bodies. It's not just a transition. It's not just a word of affirmation. We get the kingdom. Right? We, we get an incredible kingdom that was pronounced by Jesus to be near, but we will all get to experience it in its Fullness. And Revelation does such a great job of reminding us of just what a reward that will truly be. In Revelation 7, it says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the kingdom that awaits us. That's our reward. A kingdom where there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. What a remarkable gift. And so are you motivated? Do you have that incentive to, to go and fulfill where he's sending you and what he's calling you to do? Because I want to make sure that we we connect all of this because it's, it's so much more than just the fact that we get the glory of being made in his image, the honor of being known as his children, or the peace that comes from finding that safety of being in his hands, of benefiting from the, the riches of his spirit and being able to conceive who he is and serve in his plan. So much more than just being able to conquer over death, so much more than just being able to, to receive a glorified heavenly body. And as great as the kingdom is, it's so much more 
than the fact that we get the kingdom. It's that we get the king. He's right there in the center of it all, the shepherd who leads us to streams of living water. We get Jesus. He is the ultimate reward. If you're like me, you struggle with grasping how incredible that is. It's easy to say, maybe easy to find and reference in Scripture, really hard to, to fully reflect upon it. I was doing my best effort at that this past week, and here's the best I could come up with to try to encourage you this morning. I want you to think about all the love <clears throat> you've ever experienced or felt in your life. The love that you received from your mom and your dad as a young kid. Those moments where they cared for you, they laughed with you, they were there for you in your hard times. All those moments that let you knew, know that you were loved. The love that you began to maybe foster with a sibling, right? The way you, you laughed and you played with them and you made these childhood memories that only the two of you would share, the three of you or however many of you there were, building those friendships. I want you to think about the love that they carried beyond the home to other friends, both young and old, who have walked with you in every arena of life. They're to celebrate with you in your good times. They're to, to help you through the harder ones. Friends that cried with you, friends that prayed with you. All the love that you've experienced from those friendships. Maybe a love that has eventually morphed into a chance to, to call someone else a spouse, or you've made a commitment to love them forever and you've experienced just how much work that requires and how much effort that requires and, and the way you give yourself consistently to, to commit to one another and you've seen that sort of love. Or maybe as you've gone throughout life, you've even had the opportunity to look upon another life and love them as a mom and as a dad. And you've seen what it is to love a child, or just a grandchild. All the love you've ever experienced in your life that makes life so beautiful and meaningful. Think of all of it, and it pales in comparison to the love that awaits you in Jesus. That's your reward. He is our reward. He's the one that allows the light to shine in the darkness. He's the one that brings us into Glory and honor and peace. He is our teacher. He is our shepherd. He is our guide. He is our savior. He is our great reward. And so when you ask yourself, is he, is he worth it? Is he worth the risk? Is he worth all the, the potential suffering, all the potential hardships? Is he worth all the things I may have to surrender. I want you to think back upon this love that awaits you and declare with a resounding yes, he is worth it. For he is our most precious reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do more than just create. You do more than just exist. Father, you, you love us in such a way that only you can. 
And so forgive us for the many moments and the many seasons where we lose sight of that. And we begin to, to veer off and drift into a life that, that loses its anchor in understanding just how great it is to know you. And so, Father, I know that you are sending each and every one of us as individuals. You're sending us as a church. And in the sending, God, you're constantly reminding us of what it is to receive as well, to welcome you into our lives. And so I pray that for everyone who is gathered here with us this morning, God, we can reflect upon the beauty and the hope of the reward that comes with knowing you. And God, that would spur us into action. It would spur us into loving obedience. It would spur us into a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. And God, on those days where it's hard, those days where it's scary, where it's overwhelming, when complacency drifts in and we begin to question the worthiness of this task, we would once again look upon your throne, look upon this Savior, and say he is absolutely worthy of it all, worthy of all praise and glory and honor, worthy of the adoration of all nations, worthy of everything that we could ever give. He is worthy. Father, may this be the prayer of our lives, both today and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.